You are listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast exploring scripture and all things related to it. New episodes are released daily. For more information, check out glossahouse.com and subscribe to our channels on Spotify and YouTube. Welcome and enjoy. Hello and welcome to Proof Text. I am Michael Halcom, and in this episode, I'm going to share with you three things that I'm thinking about. Uh, actually, I'm going to share with you three things on the same topic that I'm thinking about, namely love. Now, I just finished a tw- uh, 20-page essay. Uh, it's about 12,000 words. Just finished it a little bit ago. I've uh, been working hard on that. I have a, uh, a presentation, a conference presentation coming up in early February at a conference in Chicago. And then um, I also have a... Uh, conference coming up at the end of April. And um, yeah, so uh, I'm going to use this paper in a way for both of those presentations, although each presentation will probably be a little bit different than the other. Um, So in this paper, basically what I'm doing is um, I'm I'm trying to define love, help people understand uh, the, the scriptural view of love, and then um, also make the case that we can actually quantify love. So um, I'm just going to share with you three things that jumped out at me as I was working on this um, research project. The first thing um, is that I've noticed uh, that our culture really, um, or society, even a lot of our world, uh, wants to uh sort of tear down boundaries and embrace this idea that things are just fluid nothing is fixed or nothing is stable and everything is just fluid and so uh, we'll tear down musical boundaries we'll tear down gender boundaries we'll tear down sexual boundaries any boundaries that exist we'll tear them down because we embrace this idea of fluidity uh and when people do this they don't realize that uh, what it results in is essentially chaos, um, because for a society to be able to function, they actually have to have uh, shared language, and for a shared language to work, they have to have shared definitions and understandings. And when things are fluid, there is no shared language and no shared definition. This is why when you're a liberal, a progressive, and you're on the left side, uh, it's impossible to keep up with uh, what's the latest PC, right? What's the latest politically correct thing to say? Because the terms are always changing. And so you're going to have to end up apologizing when you're late to the game. You know, you use an outdated uh, word or definition. Uh, you're going to have to you're going to have to be embarrassed and ashamed, right? When you realize you're behind on something. And so uh, it creates this sort of shame and embarrassment and chaos because nothing is fixed. And um, because of that, I'm arguing that, you know, we need a stable definition of love so that we all know what we're talking about when we say that term, when we use that term, when we hear that term. And if you've been listening to Proof Text for any time, uh, you know that I've floated my definition of love on here. Uh, which is essentially wanting God's best for the other. We could also just say wanting God's best for all, right? Um, just shorten it a little bit, wanting God's best for all. And what I do in this paper 
So the second thing that that jumped out um, at me as I surveyed all the terms in Scripture, or almost all of the terms in Scripture, so Hebrew and then in Greek, for words that connote love. I I looked at all of these, and so um, I didn't realize that in Hebrew uh, there were so many. Right there, there's quite a bit more than in Greek. Um, at least there's quite a bit more in the Hebrew Old Testament than there is in the Greek New Testament. Uh, for example, um, uh, you have Yedid, Ahav, Chesed, Dod, Ra'ea, Chashek, and Rachmim. So you have, I think, even there, just seven, seven words. And really, I think I argued in the paper that only five of those I would consider to convey love. Um, but still, that that's, you know, that's a handful of terms. It's quite a bit of terms. And um, in the Greek New Testament, you have really uh, three different forms. You have a form of storge, you have agape, and then you have um, uh, philia. You don't really have eros, right? You've heard probably about those four, uh, four forms of love from like C.S. Lewis and, and that, that sort of thing. Um, but you know, there, there, you know, when you, when you think about the terms in scripture for love, you're already in the double digits. Like even if you just do the seven from the old Testament and the three from the new Testament, that's 10 already. Um, so yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of terms. And what I'm arguing in, uh, my paper or my essay is that, uh, really all of these terms can come under one sort of umbrella definition, which is the definition I just offered you, wanting God's best for all. And so I'm trying to make that case in the paper. And so I look at all these instances of where these words occur. And um, yeah, it took a lot of work to, to do that, but uh, it was enlightening and illuminating for me. And then from there, I went on and I looked at what a lot of Christian thinkers um, have said, uh, how they've defined love throughout um, uh, the history of Christian thought, and then also even just some secular thinkers. And so here's a here's a third insight that I realized. Um, the first one, going you know, the first insight is that our society does resist definitions, particularly definitions of love, because they want to define it however they want. There's, and I can say more about that in a minute. The second is there's quite a few more terms in the scripture for love than I had realized. And the third thing that I'll share with you here is that um, my definition of love that I'm offering is very in very good uh, company um, with Christian thinkers throughout history. But actually, uh, if you go back to Greek literature, I realized that that definition is very Aristotelian. So Aristotle's definition um, sounds like that. And in fact, the Catholic Church, the Catholic Catechism, actually uh, uses Thomas Aquinas. Um, in his uh, Summa, uh, who himself uh, cites uh, Aristotle's definition, um, love is wanting the best for the other. Now, it doesn't mention wanting God's best for the other. That may be implied in Aquinas. I don't know that it's implied in Aristotle. Uh, I'm making it explicit in my definition. Um, so there are all these Christian thinkers uh that you have, and uh, some secular philosophers as too. M. Scott Peck, who's an American psychiatrist, uh, he, he defined love as the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing another one's own or another's spiritual growth. Uh, Karl Barth, 
Um, he he uh, identifies, he describes love as identifying with others' interests and utter dependence of the question of the other's attractiveness of what the other has to offer. So kind of a wordy definition, but essentially the same kind of thing. Um, uh, Tim Keller, John Piper, Robert Barron, uh, they all they all define love similarly. Similarly, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, he kind of defined love similarly. Richard J. Foster, uh, John Wesley, um, you know, he's on this sort of same wavelength. So I'm in good company with that definition. So before I mentioned the um, first point, maybe next week I'll share three more thoughts on love. Just thinking about the paper as well. But um, you know, the first point about our culture. Uh, wanting to, you know, value this idea of fluidity. And so I argue in the paper that um, uh, this is uh, this a big part of this is they want to foster this culture um, of acceptance. So I, I use this uh, tact of asking five whys. So I start with why do some people resist defining love in a culture that values fluid definitions and identity? Well, because defining love in a fixed or rigid way is limiting or constraining and it goes against the cultural trend of embracing fluidity in various aspects of life including identity which leads to the second question why is embracing fluidity and definitions and identity important in this cultural context answer because it aligns with the idea that individuals should have the freedom to explore and express their feelings their desires their identities without being bound by predeformed predefined norms and expectations Okay, so third question, why might defining love be perceived as a challenge to this freedom? That's an important one. And the answer is because it's seen as an attempt to impose norms or expectations on how love should be experienced, which may not align with the diverse range of feelings and relationships that people want to explore. Which leads to the fourth question, why is the diversity of feelings and relationships important to acknowledge? Answer because it allows individuals to express themselves and, and uh, fosters a culture of acceptance and inclusivity. And five, why is fostering a culture of acceptance and inclusivity important in this context? Um, and the answer is because it, in, it values individuals' unique experiences and identities. And so that gets to the bottom of it, right? Now, I'm not saying I agree with that, but I'm asking these why questions to try to get to the root cause, the soft answer, if you will. Um, and that's raised in the first question. Why do people resist defining love in a culture that values fluid definitions and identity? Well, they resist defining, there's my, my final answer, like the root cause. People resist defining love in a culture that values fluidity and definitions and identity because they see it as a potential constraint on personal freedom and diversity of experiences, relationships, and identities that they want to explore. And so this is striking to me because what I really see here is a distinct um, uh, emphasis on what individuals want for themselves, you see. Yes, uh, what individuals want for themselves. And that's the, the, the rub right there, right? And that stands in stark contrast to the definition of love offered by, I think, Scripture by history of Christian thought, the definition I'm offering, um, which is, you know, uh, wanting God's best for all. And that's very different than wanting uh, what I think is best for self, 
what others might think is best for me or what I think is best for others. You know, this is one thing God's best. And of course, God's best, when we define that, you might be asking, well, what is God's best? I think it's a life of surrender and obedience. And you look at Christ to see that example, the living word of God in Christ to see that example. So that's three thoughts on love. When um, the episode went a little bit longer than I was expecting, but I think this is important. And so, yeah, I think in next week's episode, who knows, maybe even the one after that, I'll continue sharing a few more thoughts on love. But I'll stop there. That's three thoughts on love. And so I'll say, I hope that helps. Interested in growing your ancient language skills, but not sure where to start? Glow's House can help. From illustrated readers and short stories to lexicons and grammars, Glow's House offers a variety of resources for beginning, intermediate, and experienced ancient language learners. Head to glowsahouse.com today. Glow's House language resources for the global community.